Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is SOGCast number seven. My name is John Strykermeyer. Welcome to this podcast, courtesy of Jocko Willink Productions. This story comes from Command and Control South, July 16, 1968. And we're looking at this from the perspective of the helicopter pilots, the crew members, for a little different perspective on SOG. So on this date, on the J- July the 16th, there had been a 28-man hatchet force on the ground in Cambodia since um, for about eight days. So on this day, the that element comes into contact. At about the same time, a six-man recon team gets inserted. And, of course, there's some weather questions. And uh, we're going to read from one of the gunmen the gun crew members who on that day were flying. And he said, I'm reading from the book here, Secret Green Beret Commandos in Cambodia by Lieutenant Colonel Fred Lindsay, who was a commander at CCS for a period of time during 70-71. We're quoting here. Pat McMullen wrote, I remember we got the team in, that's the recon team, and the guns stayed on station if needed. Shortly after they went in, they made contact. That same time, the typhoon blew in. Our slicks were grounded at Quan Loy. So we were all those guys had. So here we came. There was no hesitation. Those were our guys down there and they needed help. The guns were the only ones still in the air. The guys on the ground were taking wounded in action, and they needed to be evacuated. Since we were the only ones there, Lieutenant Sigmund said we would come get them. He said to fire up all of our ammo. We fired all of our door gun ammo and all the rockets. But both 
minis jammed. Those are the mini guns. Sigmund told us to use the door guns to fire it up. This worked well until both of the operating springs fell apart in a million pieces and jammed both of them. We couldn't even get them apart. The lieutenant then had us break it into three neat, neat round pieces and throw it out the door until he felt we were light enough. We then went in and picked up six or eight little people and headed, I think, to Quan Loi. Could have been Dua Tien. I know for sure that was the rough, roughest ride I've ever been in in a helicopter pilot. We did everything except go upside down. Another uh, crew chief, and that was Richard Ty Furbish. He recalled, we had the teams in trouble. It was really nasty weather. We went anyway. We left Da Tiang and couldn't get back. Captain Sigmund, First Lieutenant Neal, First Lieutenant Hyman, Chief Warrant Tegardine, and Chief Warrant Satterfield, and Captain Wildell, hope I didn't leave anybody out, were all awarded medals for their flying abilities. What I remember is that we were really in thick soup. I just sat back and trusted the pilots. What else could I do? As I remember, only one or two of them actually had an instrument ticket at the time. Oh yeah, and we came back through that weather with the teams on board. So today, I want to introduce our guests who flew with Lieutenant Neal, and this was with the 195th Helicopter Unit. I'd like to introduce Don Haas today. Don, welcome to the show. Welcome, Till. <laughs> Glad to be here. Thank you. And um, I think that is one of the uh, classic missions. And again, like a lot would just say, it's just another day in SOG. But um, this is an opportunity for us to look at it from the aviator's perspective. And uh, we had the award citation where they went into the details about what that operation was. Not only did they get the recon team out, but then at the same time, uh, the six-man extraction, the 28-man reported heavy contact and numerous casualties. The air commander and other supporting aircraft were now completely weathered in. So this is just another day, and this is Cambodia. So talk to a little bit about uh, um, your tour of duty, which began October of 1967. Uh, yeah, I uh, joined the Army in uh, July. In fact, uh, my official date is July 3rd, 1966, and uh, went to basic training up at Fort Lewis, Washington. And after basic training, went to... Fort Eustis, Virginia, to go through 67N20, which is the MOS for the helicopter repairman on a Huey helicopter. A.K.A. Crew Chief. A.K.A. Crew Chief. <laughs> um, the, the Crew Chief is the uh, one of the door gunners, and he's the flight mechanic that uh, flies with the aircraft. Uh, thinking that if the mechanic's going to work on the aircraft, 
if he uh, were to fly with it, he might do a little bit better job in in what he was doing because uh, it could direct his life uh, directly. So, in other words, if anything went wrong, they said, hey, fix it. Yeah. Or if it fell out of the sky, you'd be blamed. Not the pilots, no, but the crew and, chief. Exactly. And and if... if uh, you know, we screwed up and we crashed in a in a ball of fire someplace. You know, it was our fault. <laughs> and you know, most nineteen year old kids don't want to do that. Indeed, you know? <laughs> particularly today. But back then, nineteen sixty eight, you're on the job. Exactly. Um, so uh, you're with, with Lieutenant Neal that day, and then uh, take us back to a little bit of the weather condition. I mean. He kind of glanced over the fact that a typhoon hit suddenly, or the team's in contact, and everybody, those gunships went out there, and whereabouts were you all on that day? Yeah, we were at Quan uh, uh, which was a launch site. Uh, CCS also had another launch site at uh, Dao Tiang. Quan was up closer to the border, and uh, so it was used... Uh, Dao Tiang was about uh, 15, 20 clicks south of the border. So, right, and so at that time, there were three separate commands for SOG at that time. CCS was south, which was Bamituit, and then you had the launch sites where the recon teams or hatchet force would go out. Then you all would pick them up, get briefed for a mission before launching for the target. Then Contum was CCC, up in two core, then I Corps was CCN. And they had several launch sites up there. So getting back to CCS, which, by the way, Fred Lindsay's book is the biggest, most uh, thorough book on Command and Control South produced to date. Correct. And it's just really an outstanding. It goes from the beginning all the way through to even at the end, which is over 500 pages of uh, work that he put into this effort. Yeah, uh, Fred Lindsay's uh, book is really designed to be a, uh, a scholar study of CCS and their operations and what they did. And he covers it. Uh, in order for the story to get into the book, there had to be a, uh, a, a medal citation awarded. Right. And as you know, Till, in SOG, probably only... 20 or 30 percent of the missions that were performed uh, actually got uh, citations because of the classified nature of our work. It was just not talked about. We tried to keep a very low profile. Indeed. And so because uh, the SOG operations were top secret, any helicopter asset that came in, whether it was a gunship, slick, cranes, whatever it was, they all came in with the understanding you can't talk about this. Keep right. your mouth shut for at least 20 years. Right. In <laughs> fact, uh, we, what was your briefing like on that? When uh, in the end of May, yeah, we uh, May 68. Yeah, the end of May 68, we uh, went back to work for SOG. We'd worked for them the month of April and then we took some time off, uh, primarily because of the May offensive in uh, uh, Saigon. We were down uh, defending Saigon. Like the mini-tet, the second the, tet. Yeah, it's called the mini-tet. Of, of, uh, uh, officially, it's the May Offensive, but uh, unofficially, it's mini-tet. 
That's what we cat. call it. By golly, that's our history. We're sticking to it. Yeah. <laughs> really? But it wasn't like you're going down to just another day in the sunshine, go out to the beach. You're down there defending troops and positions against another invasion from the communists that were trying to take over Saigon. Yeah, there was a, a major, major offensive. They did get... Uh, uh, several uh, units inside Saigon, and the 9th Infantry Division had to uh, kick them out, basically. And uh, then uh, after that, uh, May of 68, probably the 20th, we were in part of a uh, uh, 100-ship combat assault, and basically we took a division of troops and were put a blocking force on the Cambodian border, and then the 9th Division pushed the troops out of out of Saigon, and we tried to am, uh, hammer and anvil them on the Cambodian border when they returned. After that mission, then we went back. Colonel Drake uh, requested our uh, return. And Colonel Drake to, was the OIC at that time. Yeah, Colonel Drake uh, is the um, officer in charge. He was the officer in charge of Sigma, and uh, Sigma and Omega were joined to form CCS. And right. well, that's right, because 68, we still had Bami Tuat, which was FOB 5, and then we had Honok Tau, which is FOB 6, which I was a little familiar with, and Met Colonel Drake there in November of '68. <laughs> yeah, right after I came home. Yes, indeed. You, you left, and I had to pick up the pieces thereafter. No, exactly. <laughs> uh, so anyway, when we went back to them, our uh, commanding officer, uh, the 195th, decided that we should have sterilized camouflage helicopters like the 20th SOS did up at Bami Tuat, which was the a, Air Force unit. Yes. And the Air Force Hueys were uh, uh, painted a camouflage three-color scheme in the Air Force tradition. And uh, so we got a bunch of AK-47s from the Sigma people, and we traded one AK-47 for a paint job <laughs> with the Air Force. And... Uh, we uh, ended up getting all 31 of our helicopters painted. You know, we used to have similar trades up north where we either give an AK-47 captured from the enemy sure, or a, a bloodied flag, and a communist flag, for 500 stakes. The same yeah. kind of trading like yeah. you all had. Did some of those, like those flags have pig blood on them? Or, or chicken. Um, <laughs> one or the other. <laughs> or somebody cut themselves, fixing their web gear, and they bleed on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but good enough for the Air Force, or 500 stakes, or in your case, a whole paint job. Yeah, so we, so at that time, we were completely sterile. We had no U.S. markings on the helicopters. And we took all of our, our dog tags off and all of our name tags off our uniform. In fact, most of us went to the tiger-striped uniforms at that time with no markings, and we carried no uh, identification of any kind, no paperwork. And we had to sign a non-disclosure statement that we wouldn't talk about what we were doing uh, in in wherever we went. Indeed. Did they have a time limit on that, or just don't uh, our, talk? It didn't, it didn't have a time limit. It was oh, forever. Forever. And, <laughs> and we were... Um, we were instructed that we couldn't have any uh, 
uh, Air Force air cover, no uh, TAC air, could cover us in Vietnam. The only thing we could use was our own indigenous uh, Thunder Chicken gunships. So again, this and, is in the Cambodian AO, which was also known as Daniel Boone at the time. And what we're talking about here is if, it, if our units came into contact, whereas in Laos, we had A-1 Sky Raiders, Phantom Jets that could be, it might take a while, but they would eventually get there to respond. And at CCS, none of that was available. It was strictly slicks with whatever guns, helicopter gunships were attached. And that's what you're talking about here. Correct. The 195th and then... What was the chicken thunder for the guns? Yeah, our, our, uh, <laughs> our, uh, our, uh, the company uh, call sign and logo was Sky Chief for the 195th Assault Helicopter Company. The first platoon, uh, they were Snoopy and the Red Baron, and they had oh, nose on those. Snoopy yeah. on a, on a, on his doghouse and with a uh, scarf yeah with yeah. some with a scarf <laughs> and some red baron bullet holes in it like in a cartoon yes and then the second platoon was the ghost riders and that was the platoon that i was in and then the gun platoon was the thunder chickens and the thunder chickens got their name kind of interesting when we were at fort carson <laughs> we would drink thunderbird wine and oh, you could buy Thunderbird wine for, for about 25 cents. Yeah, it was a buck a gallon or less, <laughs> 79 Ooh. cents a gallon. And it wasn't good. Was it true that you could use it for gasoline if you ran out of gas? I think so. <laughs> I think so. It was it was so bad that we would mix seven up with it. <laughs> and the 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 mixture of Thunderbird wine and seven up was nicknamed Thunder Chicken. <laughs> So when we got to Vietnam and oh. it was time to, you know, develop a pick a company coming. Okay. Yeah, so so, you know, the kids in the in the, you know, Thunder Chicken platoon said, Well, let's do Thunder Chicken. Oh. So they designed this rooster with rockets under its wings. And, right. And uh they became the Thunder Chickens and uh uh actually had a very valorous uh career in the Vietnam War. Uh, they were instrumental in uh, saving Long Ben and, and uh, Saigon in the Tet Offensive in 1968. Wow. Along um, with running SOG missions. Yeah. And uh, wow. then, of course, their, uh, their SOG missions. In fact... Uh, now, were you there for any of that? Uh, yeah. In 68? So you're, yeah. you're modestly just saying, this all happened? Oh, and by the way, I was there. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was there. I was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, okay, Mr. Modesty. De- yeah, de- <laughs> defending uh, uh, Long Ben. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, when Ted happened, uh, four days prior... So, Ted, to- just for our first-time viewers, would be at the end of January of 68, February. They had a massive attack throughout the South Vietnam by the Communist forces, NVA, Viet Cong. They thought they could rise and that the population would rally behind them. But they didn't, and Americans won, and our allies won every major battle. And part of that was thanks to our air cover. And at Long Bend, you're talking about an A camp that was there, or the city thereof, or both? Yeah, the Long Bend was a large logistical base camp uh, just north, about 17 miles north of Saigon, and about four or five miles east of the Air Force base of Benoit. And... uh, 
So we had uh, uh, General uh, Whalen had believed the intelligence, the recon teams. And General Whalen was? He was the uh, Westmoreland second in command, and he was in charge of the Three Corps area. Uh, south of uh, the southern part of Vietnam. Right, so at that time we had I-Corps, which was north, right on the DMZ, come south, II-Corps, which was Contum, III-Corps, Saigon, Long Bin, IV-Corps was the Delta. Delta South. And, and just exactly. flat and ugly with lots of water. Right. And so uh, we were put on red alert four days before. and uh, I so never heard we, that before. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, you know, I had uh, uh, wrote a letter home to my parents saying, what does it mean when you've been in country for four months and the Army gives you your weapon out of the Lockconnex container and 80 rounds of ammunition <laughs> and all your web gear? And then Tet happened. They didn't hear from me for about three or four weeks. And all they saw was the news accounts wondering what the hell happened. Oh, my but, God. Uh, yeah, we were uh, so... I was, in, at the time, I was in maintenance working the night unscheduled maintenance team, and we got off about 11.30 at night, and then we'd go to the mess hall and eat what was our breakfast and then hit the rack. And we were in the rack about 2 in the morning, we heard uh, rocket mortar rounds coming into the Long Bin base. So we all rolled out of the, out of the tent, and we're in this big, deep irrigation ditch, and uh, laying there in our first combat, just scared shitless, you know. Oh, yeah. And uh, you got the 122s coming in. Yeah. And those are the long missiles, with, rockets. They're, they're a huge, huge explosive device. Um, in fact, uh, people know of them now as Katusha rockets, and that's what the uh, 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 NVA used. Yeah, what the NVA used, and it's what the. Uh, uh, Hamas is launching into Israel pretty Today. much. It's, it's, and, and those rockets, I mean, we were told they could go through 10 inches of sandbags before they would explode. They're just god-awful. Yeah, and they're they piercing armor, and they did a tremendous amount of damage. Absolutely. You know, huge rockets. And uh, so anyway, um, the executive officer comes up, and he goes, I want six volunteers. And he goes, you, 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 and you are them. <laughs> and Thank so, you for volunteering. <laughs> yeah. So he took us in. We didn't even have any Constantina wire on our perimeter. And off of our flight line, he went out into a jungle for about half a mile, less than half a mile. And then there was the Long Bend Ammo Dump, which was just a huge ammo storage facility with underground bunkers with with all of the artillery shells and Air Force bombs and ammunition and everything in it. And uh, so we went down on the perimeter and we had these uh, about three or four sandbag high C-shaped bunker fighting positions that we were put in with an M60 machine gun. And uh, so I was uh, laying there on my M60 and had my, my gunner with me to feed me ammo and you know, we were all set. There were three of us per, per bunker position. Basically a fighting position. Wasn't even really a bunker. Yeah. And uh, I'm all of a sudden out in front of us about uh, maybe 150 yards. 
I see this gunship flying. And pretty soon he turns on his landing light and uh, starts shooting with his minigun. And to my horror, a line of tracers go up in front of the, the uh, gunship, and it's Charlie. Trying to shoot in. him down. Yeah, trying to shoot him down. And it, what I found out later was is that was the, the Vietnamese barber that was uh, cut hair for the 117th Assault Helicopter Company and the 195th. And he was leading a sapper team into the uh, uh, pilot tent, so he was going to do a sapper attack on the, on the pilots. Whoa. And uh, luckily, and I found this out later, uh, the 117th had a Lieutenant Mitchum in it. And Lieutenant Mitchum was prior Special Forces, and then he went to flight school and became a, a helicopter pilot. And he was stationed at uh, uh, the 117th, was right across the road from us, and they shared the flight line with us in Mess Hall. And uh, he had some friends down at uh, Honok Tau, which is where Sigma was stationed. Yeah, FOB6. Yeah, you've been there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a little while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he uh, did, didn't want to carry a 38, which is what the Army issue uh, weapon for a pilot was. And so they took him into their arms locker and, and uh, let him pick out what he wanted, and he picked out a grease gun. <laughs> So a forty-five caliber grease gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The M1A or yeah, it fires when you open bolt. Yeah, hang on, Sloopy. Yeah, <laughs> and fires a forty forty-five caliber yeah. uh, pistol round. So uh, anyway, when the mortar started coming in, he goes to the perimeter immediately, and he's there. And by now, the flare ship had shown up, and in a flare. He sees these people in the wire, and so he lit them all up, killed all nine of them. And uh, when they went out to get the bodies at sunrise, why, it was our company barber, and he was leading uh, sappers in to, to wow. attack the barrack. And, uh, you know, had he not been there, had he not been prior military trained and, you know, knew to go to the wire when incoming came in, you know, there's no telling what would have happened. Wow, no kidding. And uh, So you guys made it through that night then? So we did make it through that night, but the next day uh, we had snipers dug in on our perimeter and they were shooting at us and they kept us pinned down for probably three or four days. Anytime you'd get up on a work deck on top of a helicopter, you'd be shot at. Like any time you were trying to, you were talking to me earlier about how one of the key things with a helicopter crew chief has to do is every day get the grease removed from the top where the propellers come into the helicopter because yeah. otherwise it'd be too much grit. And so you had to do that. And whenever you go up to do a routine maintenance like that, yeah, they'd be taking pot they'd shots. They'd take at you. pot shots at us and keep us on the ground. So, so in between, would you take any? Were they doing any uh, slick activity, going out to pick up troops, drop people off, or uh, supporting gunships? Not or much. The gun, the gun teams were in the activity because the the Thunder Chickens yeah. they were uh, 
quite active through the whole time. I mean, they were flying uh, 15, 16, 18-hour days wow. uh, in the defense. And one thing, uh, when we were at uh, we were at Song Bay supporting Sigma up there, or Omega, one of the two. Yeah. Uh, they brought our gunships back when uh, uh, when they knew the assault was happening, and uh, on their way back, about three in the morning, just north of Long Bend, uh, and on the 199th Light Infantry Brigade's perimeter. They caught about 400 NVA in the open coming to assault us from the uh, north. And uh, they just had a fish in a barrel shooting time and just, uh, you know, thwarted that attack. It never happened. And how they happened to be in the air? That just seemed very fortuitous. They were just the luck of the draw. They were flying home to to support Saigon. And... uh, they just happened to fly by and notice all these people running around down there. And, you know, they knew they weren't Americans because uh, uh, yeah, they didn't have American uniforms on. Wow. They could tell and, that at 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Of course, in Saigon and Cambodia, majority of Cambodia, unless you got to the north, it was much more flat terrain than what was uh, we're aware of, like in Laos with the mountains and everything else. Yeah, and, and the engineers had cleared all of the area north of us for 100 yards or so out from the 199th perimeter so that, you know, they didn't have uh, vegetation to conceal themselves in. Right, Then you also had the A-Camp Loch Ninh that was nearby too, correct? That was about 70 miles north of us, right on the Cambodian border. It because was, they had a major siege there also. Yes, and uh, just for just a little quick sidebar, we knew the medic who was there, and they were under siege for three or four days. And after the fourth day of the battle, they're all almost out of ammo. And in the morning, through the haze, they could see 3,000 NVA line up. They're going to overrun the A camp. And they were able to get through to Spectre. Killed them. Just wiped out 3,000. Just Florida would have been wiped out. Oh, yeah. And that was just, you know, there was all over that that happened. Um, there was uh, right across uh, Highway 1 from Long Bend, there was a little village. And it was called the Widow's Village or the Orphan's Village. And it's where the widows of the South Vietnamese army that were killed in battle lived. And... Uh, the NBA and and uh, VC had come in, and they took over their their village, and they dug bunkers inside their houses, and they were going to assault the the Long Bend Post across the highway from the west. The same time those guys to the north were going to assault it. Same time that the sapper were going to be blowing up all of the pilots. Whoa! And. Uh, uh, the uh, one of the commanders of the 11th Cav were there with their AP, APCs, and he started as soon as he heard the mortars and rockets come in, he started going up the highway and going towards this village. And he had some of his guys dismount, and they were walking up the road. and He looked up the road, and it was a Y in the dirt road, and 
he noticed there was a gun emplacement there, and he could tell it was not a Modus 50 caliber <laughs> machine gun, but that it was a Russian uh, 51 caliber machine gun. And so he and his, his cab unit took it under fire, and those guys never got out of their bunkers in the house to assault us from the West. Wow. And I learned later at one of the reunions, one of our guys drove the hooch maids and, and people that worked on base for us home, and they were from that village. And usually when they'd drop them off, they'd say, well, we'll see you tomorrow. And uh, they dropped them off the night before Tat, and they said goodbye because <laughs> they knew the VC were going to attack they yeah. knew they didn't dare say anything about it, and uh, they figured we weren't going to survive the night. Wow! And uh, but just through the luck of God and some uh, uh, vigilant GIs, uh, yep. their plans didn't come to fruition. Indeed. So then, guess back to that mission in July, that uh, when we opened up the show with talking about. Um, a typhoon coming in and the gunships go out, fire up all the ammo, make us get rid of as much weight as possible to pick up a recon team that has wounded. They get them out at the same time. That 28 man hatchet force is getting hammered and there's also gun runs and slicks going up to get them. Right. And uh, the 30 man hatchet force, we could carry about six people per slick. So you're looking at five slicks required to do that, and then the slick to get the six-man recon team. And then there were uh, four guns that went along with that. So break that down a little bit from your side. Your pilot is Lieutenant Neal? Yes. And the co-pilot is? Um, I don't recall. Or do they rotate through? They rotated. Uh, What you cared about was your pilot. Yeah, and and (laughs) Lieutenant Neal was the company instructor pilot. So any new pilot that came into country would fly with him. Or if a pilot had been in country a while and wanted to, you know, was close to becoming promoted to an aircraft commander, which is the pilot in charge, then they would fly with Lieutenant Neal and he'd run them through their paces. So they pretty much rotated all the time, but... Lieutenant, what about your fellow door gunner? Would that rotate also, or would uh, you have somebody you knew and loved over there? No, I had the same door gunner the, the, the whole time, and a, a man by the name of Ed Kraus. And uh, Ed was, uh, to my way of speaking, he was the best gunner in Vietnam. I mean, he, uh, <laughs> we, he was uh, really worked well with me, and... Lots of times the gunner and crew chief would would work together. So uh, when we would work on the helicopter, we'd work on the helicopter together. You know, he'd handle. So you train him up a little bit. Yeah, and he could, what you learned in, he, in crew he, chief school. Yeah, and he knew the difference between a half inch wrench and a seven sixteen. <laughs> could hand me tools and you Indeed. know, hand me the right size safety wire and and you know just. Be a helper. So did he and volunteer then, to make your helic help you make your helicopter one of the most polished, brightest? So the Colonel Drake always wanted to fly in that lead bird. Yes, he did. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, 
And then I would help him with the guns. And sure. we had uh, the M60, uh, we had a habit of the only time we cleaned it was when the rate of fire slowed down. And that told us, when the rate of fire slowed down, that told us that the gas port was getting plugged up oh. and we needed to take it down. Because every time we tore it completely down and cleaned it, the first time we fired it, it would jam. Really? Yeah. And so... What we did was every day we'd take the silicone bolt grease and we'd right. just give it a new shot of bolt grease, keep the bolt low. Magic lotion, huh? Yeah. You're about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brill cream. Yeah. Little dab will do you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we did that. We Another thing we did was we doubled the uh, gas piston return spring. And that bumped the M60 cyclic rate of fire from about 550 rounds a minute to 600 rounds a minute. So we'd fire a little bit faster. So we can also delineate at that time, this is before the Cobra gunships arrived. So as a slick, you would be the passenger carriers. You would go in to pick up the teams and the gunships would support you. And I think that, you know, we always talk about this kind of quickly from being on the ground. But like, oh yeah, we called the helicopters, they did some gun runs, the slick would come in, pick us up, and we go home. But there's a lot more strategy involved. Like, So if you have a team in contact, what would be the general working principle there, particularly if you're in Cambodia, and that's all you have is just you and your gunships. you got to get the team out. What would be the tactic, the general approach to that uh, target? So basically, the, the way the tactic works, and I know you know this, but... Uh, we would have four slicks orbiting at altitude away from... So at altitude, 3,000, 5,000? Yeah, three, at altitude would have been 3,000, what we called out-of-effective small... So the AK volume. rounds would bounce off at that level. Yeah, they, if, they might reach that far, but they were going to be pretty spread out, and they weren't going to hit you many times. Lower energy, too. You know, or, <laughs> yeah, they might bounce off of a hardened... hardened yeah, uh, yeah something like a transmission or something. And um, so they would be in orbit. We would have a forward air controller, which was usually in contact with the team and had them spotted on the ground. And then uh, sometimes we would have Colonel Drake at 5,000 feet being the command and control controlling the whole operation. Would he be in a and helicopter or like an O2? In, he'd be in a helicopter. Also, okay. Yeah, he'd be in one of the 195th helicopters. So on, an, on a recon team extraction, we might have five slick helicopters involved and four gunships involved, two teams, right. and staggered. So if one had to go rearm and refuel, we still had one on station. And then uh, one ship would go down and pick the team up. The other three orbitings were to, uh, if the ship got shot down in the LZ, then they were a chase ship. And one of those ships is what the chase medic would fly on when they had a chase medic, which was to go down and, and render. And so with Cambodia, because it was flat, you're usually able on the first run to pick up a, six, a whole six-man team. You didn't have to worry about elevation and things like that We'd, for weight factors. Well, yeah, we you know 
we kept the we had a, a the Lycoming 13 engine, so we had a couple more hundred horsepower. So and what model U's were they? Because I know the they, Air Force at that. When did the Air Force get the end models that were more powerful, allegedly? Well, actually, uh, the deal on that is the, <laughs> the yes. Air Force, uh, their Hueys, we had Lycoming engines. The Army had Lycoming engines. The Air Force didn't want to use the Lycoming engine because their H-53s used General Electric engines. Oh, right. And the General Electric engines were a little bit stronger. And so they made, the Air Force Hueys had General Electric engines on them. And I think they had about 1,475 horsepower. We had 1,300 horsepower. Can so I do the first time I rode in one of those? And that, that's Green why... Hornet, the, that was a little bit, it seemed a little quicker. Yeah, and they... they um, uh, had uh, the B model chassis, the shorter chassis, and but they could still pick up six men. Yeah. On the on the B model, they had a thousand horsepower engine, and they were could only pick up about four Americans. And then when they went to the gunship, they put the uh, uh, the bigger engine on them and a wider rotor blade, and they could carry the, the gun load. That's a lot of technical stuff. Yeah, but, but it's also critical mass because that, that's your entire ground support. It's, it's what makes it work. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I think we were, because our commanding officer had worked with special forces in the early days at Fort Bragg in the early 60s and then supported them in 65 on his first tour in Vietnam, and we had the stronger engines, I think we were pretty much developed to work for the Special Forces in SOG when we went to Vietnam. We had uh, uh, the stronger engine. One thing the stronger engine would do is we could hover at altitude. and Hover? Yeah, so you could, and the hovering at altitude capability gave you the ability to throw the McGuire rig ropes down right. and do what we call the string extractions. Sure. And uh, so uh, the the earlier B models with the 1,000 and even 1,100 horsepower engine didn't have the power to hover at altitude. They had to get on their, their ground cover off the ground about five feet and then go forward and go into transition transitional lift and the forward airspeed give them enough lift to fly. Wow. Getting back to that old saying that, you know, a Huey just beats the, the air into <laughs> submissions, the only reason it flies. <laughs> Indeed. And so uh, generally if you, what you're talking about is the ropes, if there's a team on the ground, you, there's not enough room for an LZ, the helicopter come in and drop the ropes. And how long were the ropes? At 150? They could they could be anywhere from uh, 150, 100, 150. Depending on the train we were operating on, the special forces rigor that tied them in the helicopter would, you know, would right. would have the 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 shorter the better. Uh, but if you're in 150 foot trees, you want to be able to get to the ground. <laughs> that causes some problems. And then for for lower insertions, we had a, a, a ladder, and uh, 
most of the time when we first started, we uh, used the rope ladders, which were really difficult to climb. But uh, Norm Doney, when he was in Project Delta, right. developed a uh, ladder that was cables and it had aluminum rungs on it and was a lot more stable. And it worked a lot better because, you know, it was almost impossible to climb a rope ladder. And, and there they'd climb up on the ladder and then they would snap a D-link into a rung on the ladder. And then they would... Yeah, or into the steel cable because it would be a yeah. more narrow. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And yeah. then with that, so... So we get back to the extraction concept. So teams in contact, they would get the gun runs, and then you all would hover. And one of the things that you observed, which I'd never heard before, talking about a hammerhead maneuver where the gunships would do hammerheads. Could you talk about that a little yeah. bit? Because I never thought about that. I mean, we, was, we need a helicopter gunship, bing, they would be there. But not thinking about the tactics from yeah, your side. Yeah, there was a couple of tactics. One was a racetrack. And the idea was is the uh, gunship team, one on each side of the slicks, would fly in a circular oval like a racetrack. And the idea was is that when one gunship finished a run and was pulling out, then the other gunship would be pulling in at the other end of the racetrack and put fire underneath them and protect their belly until they got turned out. And then when that next one went in the uh, second one would be back around to that spot and so they were just simply going around an oval track covering each other then another uh, formation was what was called a hammerhead and the uh, helicopter would come in and it would do a, a gun run and then it would do what's called a cyclic climb and that's where you tip the rotor blade back as far as you can the helicopter would climb real fast for a certain point and then the airspeed would bleed off. Well, on a hammerhead, they would do the cyclic climb out and then they would do a pedal turn, turn back around and dive back in on the target. And the uh, gunships would be doing that at different angles. And so one would come in and they would still have, one would be coming in protecting the other and when it's in its cyclic climb, then when the, the second ship went in, then the first one would do a hammerhead and basically just go up like this, rotate and come back down, kind of like a hammerhead in your yep. uh, carnival ride. Wow. And that really gives you good continuity for fire support for the team on the ground. Then that would go on for a period, and then the slicks would come in right behind it, yeah. pick up the team, and be gone. Basically, the idea is sometimes we would be coming in while all that's going on. Uh, you know, they they would be laying fire on both sides of us, and we'd come in between the, the fire. And uh, the idea is we wanted to swoop in and get the team on while the enemy had their heads down from all the firing they were seeing. And that and, doesn't happen overnight. It takes a little bit of practice to make that kind of a precision maneuver, particularly when you're working gunships with a team on the ground in contact with the enemy on top of it. It does. And uh, one thing I was going to say about the hammerhead uh, uh, maneuver maneuver is, is that up north where you were, where there were mountains, 
it was hard, it wasn't effective to do that. Down south, where it was a lot flatter territory, we could get away with that because we didn't have the mountain obstacles. You wow. Know, not saying they couldn't do it up there, <laughs> just, you know, complicated yeah. things. So in getting back to that July day, the 16th, we were talking about the gunships making a run. Where were you involved in that day? So uh, I was uh, at, we were at Quanloy. I was on strip standby, and, and Lieutenant Neal was my pilot. And we got the call that the teams were in trouble. And so uh, Lieutenant Neal said, uh, I'll go get the, the six-man team, and the other slicks with the, will follow the guns in and go pick the hatchet force up. And we uh, took off in just a, you know, blinding rainstorm. I mean, it was, I, I, I had no idea an aircraft could, I didn't even think ducks could fly in this kind of weather. It was so bad. And we're talking uh, about uh, weather to the extent it could have been called a typhoon or a typhoon level of rain, which means it could be horizontal rain. Yeah. Yeah, terrible horizontal rain, and, and we had the monsoons there, but, uh, you know, if they described it as a typhoon, if you go back and check weather records, there probably was a, a typhoon. We were quite a bit inland, so the hurricane forces would be more prevalent on the coast, but, but you still have the high winds that, uh, you know, the south and the lower east coast gets when a hurricane comes right. in, because... And then going back to a citation from that era, Major Ellie, a United States Air Force Ford Air Controller, he managed to locate that six-man team. They were surrounded. He then vectored two guns, means two gunships, two Thunder Chickens, and two slicks into the area and directed the entire operation. First Lieutenant Neal flew formation on the two gunships as they placed suppressive fire throughout the entire pickup site. And then it did that in almost record time. The team was extracted under intense heavy fire. First Lieutenant Neal's aircraft sustained three direct hits from enemy fire. The entire flight assisted each other in flying through the withering weather and eventually managed to land safely at Doal Tiang. We called it Dao Tiang. Dao Tiang, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Under instrument conditions. At the same time as the six-man extraction, the 28-man reported heavy contact again. They suffered numerous casualties. The air, commission, the air mission commander and all supporting aircraft were now completely weathered in at Quan Loy. Captain Sigmund took complete command of the entire situation called two additional standby aircraft from Da Tiang and proceeded to the battle zone. Fully extended, Captain Sigmund was relieved on station by First Lieutenant Everson, and he goes on to replacing, picking up the people, and then they're able to return and get back to base in total darkness under extremely dangerous instrument conditions. And I didn't even realize that you all had any um, instrument capabilities at that time. This is 68. Right. Yeah, it was uh, the only uh, uh, instrument that we had was the uh, 
FM radio, which is frequency module, and that's what the uh, private aviation calls ADF, right. and it's the uh, directional finding. And so uh, when L- Lieutenant Sigmund, I believe it was him, uh, got to Dao Tiang, he turned on his uh, uh, FM radio, and the other slicks were able to home in on that radio signal and fly to it, and that's how they found Dai Tiang. The weather was so bad that, uh, you know, you couldn't fly in it unless you were instrument rated, and Army aviators, you know, weren't instrument rated at that time, at least the, you know, the young helicopter pilots, you know. The... And so you just kind of glanced over, you had three direct hits from what? Uh, they were from AK-47 or an RPD. Uh, I'm guessing because they were 30 caliber. And uh, two of them hit the tail boom right behind me. And uh, one of them, uh, the M60 has a pedestal mount, and there's about a four or five inch tube that is bolted onto the chassis, and then a pedestal comes off of that. And one That's of the, where you mount your M60 on Where the M60 is mounted on so you can swing it. And one of the rounds had pierced that cross member, the tube, and uh, it went through one wall and lodged in the second wall, and uh, that second wall saved it from hitting me. Whoa. <laughs> so literally, it died, ran out of energy... Inches en route to you. Yeah, it would have. As you're sitting in your gun. Yeah, if it had been a 50 caliber, you know, or armor piercing, you know, I'd have been hit and, you know, I'd at least had a purple heart, if nothing else. If not an extra extra ass. Yeah. (laughs) Blown open by a 50 caliber. (laughs) And so uh, uh, there were other times your aircraft took some, some heavy hits also. And this is. Again, going in on picking up the troops, and in this case, a lot of times going into CCS targets in Cambodia. Yes. In fact, uh, we got shot down one time, and uh, Lieutenant Neal was flying again, and we took 28 hits. <laughs> and if we'd have taken 27 and the one hadn't hit the fuel control device, we probably would have flown out of it. But the 28th round hit our the engine's fuel control device and put it out of commission. The engine lost fuel and quit. And so... Helicopters just can't get along without some fuel. They got to have they gotta have that horsepower to make them beat the air enough so it'll submit. <laughs> <laughs> so then, so what elevation, uh, what was your altitude... <clears throat> when you got hit, and did you we, auto-rotate we in? Had, we had uh, just just inserted a team, and we were on the way out, and on the insertion, they started receiving fire. And uh, so they went into the tree line. We were on our way out when we were hit. Uh, we went down. Uh, the uh, we, Another ship behind us sat down right beside us. We The pilot... Co-pilot jumped out. I jumped out, was running over there. My gunner was running over there, and he got about halfway there, and he realized, oh, shit, I'm supposed to get the guns. And so <laughs> so he came back, got the M60s, 
and uh, uh, run back over. And when he, as he tells it, he received an air medal with a V device for his actions that day. <laughs> but if he tells it, he says, I was just scared shitless. He said, I went and grabbed the guns because I was supposed to. And about 10 feet of ammunition came with me. And so, you know, I'm running back to the pickup helicopter with this ammunition trailer along behind me. And they thought I was meritoriously setting up a perimeter. <laughs> and I know that's exactly what he was doing. He just, you know, yeah, yeah. Was downplaying it after the fact. And uh, it took uh, two weeks for me to get the helicopter back flying again. And I would have done it in probably about eight or nine days, but the fuel control device had to be ordered from Army channels and it had to come in from depot in the United States and took it a while to get there. If, uh, if we'd have had something to trade for, we might have been able to trade one for another unit. <laughs> traded some AKs or something. Or something. It. But, yeah. you know, uh, a lot of times when helicopters went down in Laos, they would come back and napalm. Yeah. If they get went, the radios out, anything technically, and then napalm or do a thermite uh, run on them. But so here you're able to send back a crane yeah, or another Yui went back and picked up your yeah, wounded bird, brought yeah. it back so you could work the, on it. And then, yeah, this, in this case... Uh, it was either just inside Cambodia or just just across the border in Vietnam. Anyway, it was such that uh, the troops on the ground could secure the aircraft and they could call a Chinook helicopter in to hook onto it and uh, bring it bring it back to plantation where right. our base was and we could fix it. Yeah, it had uh, you know all the plastic plexiglass chin bubbles and everything was all shot out of it. Is that right? And, like 28 holes. Yeah, and those... That's on an insertion, so the mission was instantly compromised. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, the area we operated in was, uh, you know, it was a free fire zone. It was, it was the NBA Charlie's territory, you know. So any time we went in, we could, we could get... Uh, uh, have a hot LZ. And was that near the area where Roy Benavides had his uh, moment in, uh, with, clashing with the NVA on the LZ in early uh, May of 68? Yeah, it would have been within uh, 10 miles or so. That's 10 all. kilometers, yeah, real close. Yeah, very close, because he was just across the border uh, in uh, um, Cambodia, probably... Uh, from what I've seen from the maps that they've got in uh, Colonel Lindsay's book, uh, you know, he was uh, just not too far, about four or five kilometers from where uh, uh, Jerry Mad Dog Shriver was, uh, had his last mission on the coffee. And that's April of 1969. Yeah. And, wow. Uh, you know, so it was a, a definite, very bad neighborhood, and uh, you know, we were we were mortared every time we came back to the FOB. You know, I mean, it was. Oh, is that right? Yeah, they had mortar teams, and as soon as the helicopters would land, why they'd drop a few mortar rounds on us. And, but at least not the one twenty twos. Yes, exactly. It'd be like, welcome home. Here's a few mortars for you. 
Yeah, yeah. There's kind of a funny story in this book. And uh, Dao Tiang, the launch site, on uh, July 4th, 1968, uh, we got word about uh, 8.30 or 9 that the recon teams and patrols, you know, noticed a lot of Yemeni activity. And so they were suspecting that there was going to be an imminent attack on Dao Tiang. So they picked up the helicopters and said, let's take them back to Saigon. So we scrambled and flew back to Saigon and, and uh, landed. Well, uh, that night, uh, Dao Tiang received 500 at least incoming mortar rounds oh. and some rocket rounds. And after the barrage was over in the talk, the NBA came up on the radio and said, Happy Fourth of July, Americans. <laughs> oh, talk about psyops, huh? Yeah, you know. And, uh, yeah, we're, our Fourth of July at FOB1, we had intel reports about attack just because it was a Fourth of July, they wanted to make an impact and... At midnight, we were so bored, they just fired flares for an hour or so. And, and nothing happened. Yeah, well, yeah, we just got dragged. They, they fought when they wanted to fight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and they might look like they're going to fight and never show. Indeed. And then, you know, they did show. And they always try to do it. It would be to their advantage. They they would plan things that way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, um, but anyway. Go ahead. Please finish on that. I was going to say, uh Back to to the extractions, yeah. Um, they um, um, would uh, uh, hit us anywhere, and I was going to say on the repair in the helicopter, uh, the plexiglass chin bubble and windshield, they have a screw that holds them in about every inch, all the way around it. Ooh. So in a uh, you know. 30 inch, two and a half foot by three foot windshield, you know, you're looking at probably 150 screws, 120, 30 screws, <laughs> something like that. And every one of those screws has a self locking nut. No. And it was before the day of DeWalt's cordless drills. <laughs> so to replace the windshield, why. The gunner usually had to get inside and hold the three-eighths-inch wrench while the crew chief was out manual driving oh. the, the uh, self-locking screw with the Phillips screwdriver. You really and, got screwed on that detail. Yeah, that was... Uh, so, you know, we always wanted to, uh, <laughs> you know, when we were flying low level, yeah. want to make sure that the pilot kept out of the trees and didn't, you know... Break any chin bubbles when we were <laughs> low leveling because that, that's how low level we flew. Right well, yeah, the and then dog. also uh, thinking about chin bubbles and low level flying, you you and I, when we were talking earlier, mentioned the cold, uh, the, the coolness of helicopter pilots. I think, you know, we've heard stories before. Jocko podcast number uh, 259 with King B, pilot, legend, major on, and how much they have the ice in their veins. And you were talking about the same thing with your man, particularly Lieutenant Neal, and yeah. how there was a day. Talk a little bit about how there was blood in 
the cockpit and the co-pilot thought he had been shot, that's just another moment in time that people never think about from inside the helicopter, please. We were uh, uh, on a mission, and it was a hot LZ, and uh, all of a sudden the the co-pilot, who just had a few few hours in the co-pilot, he was relatively new. Maybe. And where does the pilot co-pilot sit in the American helicopters? In the, in the Army helicopters, the aircraft commander pilot would be in the left seat, the door gunner would be in the left seat, the gunner in the right, and the co-pilot slash what we called the Peter pilot, Right. Would be in the in the right seat, and the king bees were just the opposite. Yeah, the pilot was in the right seat, and the co-pilot's in the left. Yeah, that's why I, I get so confused. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and uh, it it is confusing. Yes, indeed. And I and I, I think there were some other units that I've heard of that maybe the Marines that followed the king bees uh, custom of switching that around. But uh, anyway. Um, so the the Peter pilot was flying, and all of a sudden he starts screaming, "I've been shot! I've been shot! I've been shot!" And then we received a couple of rounds, and uh, I looked up in the cockpit, and there were blood splatter all over the chin bubble and the windshield, and and so Lieutenant Neal just cool calmly says, "That's okay. I got it. I got it." Meaning he, I got control of the aircraft. means give me back the control, take your hands off, I'm going to fly the aircraft. And so, uh, you know, this, this co-pilot... And you're hearing all this on the radio. Yeah, we're on the internet. You look back, you can, can see the blood in the, in, the, in the... In the helicopter, it's all over the cockpit. You know, you can see blood <sighs> splattered everywhere. And so, you know, and I'm saying, well, we're going to the medevac, 93rd medevac at, at Long Bend. And so we fly down there. And uh, uh, we get out and we sit down. Uh, Gene shuts the helicopter down. And he goes, you know, I was kind of hitting the foot. I better go in and get some treatment myself. <laughs> and come to find out the pilot wasn't hit. He just got The spl- co-pilot wasn't hit. Yeah, the co-pilot wasn't yeah. hit. He just got splattered with blood and thought he was hit. And it was actually Gene's foot that got hit. And Gene... <laughs> Not only did he get hit, he flew the helicopter back with a with a bullet wound on his on his foot, and uh, operated the control pedal, landed, and didn't get excited. Didn't oh by the way, I better I got I've shot been in shot the in the foot, but I I'll, better go get I'll just some fly treatment. for a while. Copilot, if you could just calm down a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh my just, God. You know, just the way that... he was, <laughs> and. Uh, Another time, in fact, the reason that he liked to fly with me, I was flying with him one time, and we were inserting a uh, hatchet force. And uh, it was uh, an artillery strike that hit the LZ before we went in, and so there were uh, tree snags in it. And our place to, to land, there's a tree snag right, right underneath the rotor blade. And the co-pilot was flying, and he said, uh, we're losing rotor RPM, and which means that the, we're losing power, and, and the rotor was slowing down from 330 uh, RPM. And the slower the rotor, the, 
the less power lift you, have. you have. Yeah. yeah. So Gene says, that's okay, I got it, I got it. And he said, Hassey, unload the aircraft. And uh, we had a uh, first lieutenant, special forces advisor on <laughs> in the right door, and these Cambodians. And so uh, I go up and I tell the Cambodians to get off, and they either didn't understand plain English and or didn't know what I was saying, and we were about 12, 14 feet off the ground, so it's, you know, <laughs> it was a pretty good jump. That's a real and, jump. And uh, But I'm knowing full well if we hit that snag that we're all dying right there in the ball of fire. Yeah, yeah. So I grab a hold of one and pitch him, and next one I, <laughs> I kind of shove, yeah. and the other two, they got they the got idea the and jumped. And uh, I looked over, and all the Cambodians are gone, and that uh, uh, second lieutenant sitting in the door, and I looked at him, and I unplugged my mic cord, and as soon as he saw me <laughs> unplug the mic cord, he went out. <laughs> and so... Uh, at 14 feet. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It, it might have been 10 feet, yeah. but it was, it was definitely, uh, you know... You'd want to have been closer. Can I just ask you a question? Out. How often did you jump out of your helicopter at ten to fourteen feet? I never did. Yeah. No, I no, I never did, and I never recommended it. Indeed, you wouldn't. But <laughs> on this occasion, in order to survive, it was the there was a interest. command that says Lieutenant you know, Neal said, and I felt. I mean, yeah, I felt bad about it because yeah. I knew, you know, poor guy would break an ankle down there, and the whole mission's compromised. But now he's got to be medevac. But if we were all dead, you know, that would have compromised. It gets the a little messy. Too. It might have yeah. cracked it. Might have cracked the plexiglass. You would have had to take oh, it off. And yeah, and like I said, messed up your polish. When Hueys crash, they burn. <laughs> all that jet fuel and those those uh, uh, exotic titanium, magnesium alloy metals and everything. Right. When they get hot, they burn too. Ooh. And uh, so, yeah, it's not a... Not Didn't a you have those uh, gas tanks that plugged themselves if a bullet went through it? Or Well, that was the, the bottom two-thirds of it had a double membrane. But if it was the top third, they were only single membrane cut down on weight. And oh. so if the round was in, the, they had a, a two-sided and it had like a, a tar in between it, the idea is a round went through it, then the tar would fill the hole. It wasn't uh, solvent-soluble tar, but it was, right. you know, would, would plug the hole and, and it wouldn't leak. But if if the tanks were full and a round hit above that, it was going to spray fuel everywhere and probably catch catch on fire. Wow. And, uh, so they they took me, took the aircraft back yeah. and... Uh, the engine shop looked at it and uh, they said, "Yeah, it's it's uh, needs a little adjustment. We got you fixed up." So they wrote the red X off of the red X was an entry in the logbook to mean the aircraft was unflyable and needed a maintenance attention. And so they took it up. I took it up. Had and like I said, spent five months in maintenance, so I knew the the tech. Tech pilot real well. Yeah, yeah. And so we went up there, and he'd go 200 feet, do a hover check, engine would bleed off, I'd land, I'd red exit again. No kidding. Yeah, because it wasn't supposed to do sure. that. Sure. And they'd say, well, it's 
you know, they do something else to it. It's, it's fixed now. And so we go up, it bleed RPM, I'd read X again. <laughs> and I full well know that when you're hovering around in the jungle throwing a rope ladder out or, or a McGuire rig out to lift somebody out, you can't be losing RPM and not hovering at altitude. Plus, you have to be able to lift whatever gets on right. after you've done it. So I just kept doing that. And, and we went back and forth for almost a week. Really? And finally, I won, and they sent, sent me over to Vung Tau to depot maintenance, and they determined that the engine needed to be replaced, put a new engine in for me, and I got a nice couple days in Vung Tau, which was an <laughs> R&R center. And, uh, well, after that, uh, Gene Neal, Lieutenant Neal, being the executive officer of the platoon, had decided that that's the crew chief I want. You know, if he'll do that to make sure this aircraft's flyable, yeah. he's the one I want. And so he, uh, uh, because he could pull rank, he always assigned himself to my aircraft. And uh, we got over a thousand hours together on all different missions. No kidding. You know, and so the majority of those hours are going across the fence in the Cambodian yeah, a, support. A good of... portion of them, yeah, a good portion of them were uh, going either across the fence or we did uh, in-country uh, recon also, you know, depending yeah. on where the activity was. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, you know, a little bit of background on what the aviation Well, yeah, and you're, and you're talking about Lieutenant Neal, who at some point he went to, uh, to bat for you, and he said that he had uh, served with you in Vietnam. From October 67 to 68, attached to the 195th Assault Helicopter Company at the Plantation Army Field, the Republic of Vietnam. And, of course, the primary mission there was support for MACV saw And uh, he went on to say about you, Don was the flight crew chief on UH-18, serial number 6616256. I had because I was Don's platoon leader and an aircraft commander, by pulling rank, the opportunity to choose any aircraft and crew I wanted. I chose Don and 256 as the best of the 195th had, and I now believe at the subsequent tours and all those years, possibly the best ever in the Republic of Vietnam. Together we flew over 1,000 combat hours in support of MACV SOG. Those previously classified missions, many in neighboring countries, were extremely dangerous and, it seems as if, always under enemy fire. Many missions were at night and in poor weather, adding to the stress and imminent danger. During infrequent downtime, we flew combat assaults and resupply missions with the 1st Aviation Brigade for conventional U.S. infantry units, the 9th, the 25th, the 1st, and the 101st Divisions. Don never shied away, faulted, nor maligned from his duties. He was an ideal soldier, representing and protecting his country with valor and compassion. But more importantly, his technical skills 
and heroic devotion to his fellow soldiers were paramount in my survival and the survival of many others that year. Signed, Lieutenant Eugene Neal Jr. That's quite a quite a pat in the back. Yeah, and uh, you know that story exemplifies why he feels that way about me. You know, <laughs> I think. And I might add that you know most most pilots that flew in Vietnam that had one crew chief they flew with all the time felt that way with about. Is that right? Yeah, they were they were the best. I mean, they were. They were uh, really top-notch people. But, you know, I did have a, a, a German stubbornness about me. As, <laughs> and uh, spending five months in, in the maintenance company and, and knowing all the players, uh, you know, I was able to assert myself. And, you know, a younger, less experienced crew chief might not have won that battle and there may have been a mission where they had to get a SOG team out of the jungle on ropes and they all died or, you know. Indeed, aircraft, we've had experiences like that. Yeah, the aircraft came down sure. and, and uh, had to be extracted by someone else, so. You know, and, and from the perspective of the guys on the ground, those are things they never think about. They just think, get the helicopter in here now. Yeah, and thank God you came. Hey, and thank God you're here now because we're getting low on bullets. And then when you came in, um, did you get special briefing or was that automatically a, because you had done so many SOG missions, you understood that when a SOG team came out of the jungle, there would be Americans and little people? Yeah. Yeah, that was just, you know, that just Not went, an issue. Went, went with the territory. Okay, because sometimes <laughs> up north that became an issue. but Yeah, that was pretty much. And then in, in September... Uh, I worked with Project Delta's Roadrunner teams. And, Ooh, that's uh, right. Those teams were three uh, Vietnamese guys that had NVA uniforms on, NVA weapons, and NVA uh, documentation for the units in the area. And they were called Roadrunners because they were supposed to go out on the trails, run up and down the trails, and see who they run into. And, and you uh, had experience inserting them, correct? And yeah, I inserted them uh, probably thirty times. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it and, wasn't. What's, and, what was your best roadrunner mission? There's one that kind of stands out, doesn't it? Well, there. Yeah. There's a couple. That's okay. Yeah. We got time. Yeah. This um, is Jocko's dime. We got time. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the thing about the roadrunners is, is that they would come out of the jungle. And you're sitting there and these three NBA soldiers come out of the jungle. And so you have to remember who you put in and get <laughs> eye contact with that same man. Right. Because if you don't, you better shoot him. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's a tough moment of decision there. Yeah. And I, I know you understand what I'm talking about. Well, yeah. And we, we didn't, we, in the beginning, we never had people dressed like the Roadrunners. Later on, our point man was dressed like an NVA, but sometimes the young door gunners would come in and there'd be a little bit of confusion. There's yeah. some tragic confusion, but we never had that with our team. But in your case, was there a code or a signal or did he pick his nose or something so you know it's no, I just you're a road runner, you I dropped just, off two days earlier, he's now, 
Okay. And and uh, so yeah, that was. And you of course, be pretty savvy to recognize these guys. Yeah, well, and like I I was telling you, you know, we'd we'd get we'd BS with them when we were in downtime, and and they they spoke pretty good English, and so they could tell us what they were doing and everything, and to put them on the helicopter, we'd park the helicopters down out of the way off the end of the runway. And then they'd bring them down to the helicopter in a uh, three-quarter ton truck under poncho so nobody could see what right. they were Truly wearing. Truly clandestine operation. Yeah, and uh, to get them on. But one particular mission, they were running down this trail, and they ran... Three of them. Three of them. Yeah, okay. Yeah, just three of them. And they were running up and down a trail, and they ran across to what would been a Luby... NBA lieutenant and an NBA sergeant would be a, a platoon leader and a platoon sergeant. And uh, they started talking to him. And this particular unit had just come down the Ho Chi Minh Trail from the north. And they had just got into to that part of Cambodia, the Kosovan area, about a week or two before the roadrunners ran into him. So the roadrunners talked to him, got the drop on him, arrested him, took the <laughs> weapons away from him, said, you, you know, you're coming with us. <clears throat> and so they called for an extraction. So we got the ship going out to extract them. We got the other three helicopters to chase aircraft at altitude. And we get on the, here on the radio, it says, uh-oh, we got a couple more prisoners. You better send another aircraft. And so uh, we sent another aircraft. Well, when it was all done, the uh, uh, NVA young soldiers saw that their uh, platoon sergeant and platoon leader had been captured by these guys, and so they give up. They weren't going to stay down in the jungle thousand miles from home by themselves. And so they did so, the Chuhoi. So they did the Chuhoi yeah. and come out and surrender. No and I kidding. think we ended up with somewhere 8, 10, 12 prisoners out of that. Those three guys <laughs> captured. Uh, wow. And they just had, you know, I mean, just, I don't know how those guys did it. I mean, they were Vietnamese. But, but were they North Vietnamese? They had Chuhoi themselves? Or were they... they they were. They knew uh, how to talk they, the language because yeah. there's a there's a there's a language variation between South and North Vietnam. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. You know, they were picked by the Project Delta and and vetted and trained by them. And I don't really know the details, but yeah, they were probably originally from the north and had at some time come south and then decided to to fight for the. Uh, South Vietnamese and uh, were evidently pretty damn good, and they ended up with Delta. And, wow. Uh, All right. Yeah. Well, um, we're at that point in time here. Was there any other missions, like one where you go in and like, get more than 28 bullets during the pickup of a recon team <laughs> or a moment in time in, during your 13 months uh, in, in country with you and Lieutenant Neil raising hell? Uh, over there? Well, there was one particular time. Yeah, please. We went on a uh, uh, prisoner extraction. 
During the Tet Offensive, a guy by the name of Mike Binge, who was a USA worker, which is a government agency that provides aid, and he was at Bami Tuat during the Tet Offensive, and there were three missionaries that were captured by the NVA. And so uh, about, it was probably end of May, middle of June, someplace of 1968, one of our recon teams in Cambodia had spotted them uh, where they were being held. And so we put together a, a mission to go insert a, a, a 60-person, 50-person hatchet force team to uh, liberate them from their POW camp. And so the day of the, the insertion came and we were going to put them down at very first light. And so we flew over to Cambodia and we had to have an LZ big enough for 10 aircraft because this was a big, big really? insertion. Wow. Yeah. And so we're on short final coming into the LZ. We're maybe 100 feet off the ground. This or so. early morning? Very first light. Okay, so first light. Yeah, they had their planning yeah, at night. We had first light. Yeah, we had take. We'd planned it the day before. We'd taken off before light, before sunrise, to fly out there, and you know the idea was sure catch them at first light. So we come in. We're on short final, and we look down, and in the trees on the tree line, there's a whole bunch of shelter tents. <laughs> like shelter have, like pup tents. And in front of each tent, there was stacked weapons in a triangle of stacks. Yeah, yeah. And there was all these little Vietnamese guys running around in their underwear trying to figure out what these helicopters are doing. <laughs> and in the their night camp. before, uh, 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 you know, about a thousand NVA came in and bivouacked on the tree line of RLG. And so we decided to abort the mission and take off. And and uh, I don't know, they probably trying to still figure out what happened. But, uh, <laughs> well, what happened? Did they ever get Mike Binge uh, thereafter? or They were never able to catch up with him and capture him. Uh, we put a recon team in about a week or two later. And, of course, they moved him sure. by then. And then... After he was released after the war, uh, you know, we learned that they kept moving him on and on into Cambodia, and finally he ended up in North Vietnam and and uh, was released with the rest of the prisoners. And uh, Mike went on to uh, teach in the SEER school, which is the survival escape and evasion school. Indeed. The pilots and, and uh, of operators go. Yeah, Absolutely. It, yeah. He actually developed the program for them, and and is an American hero, um, serving as a U.S. aid worker. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, any other last thoughts there from your tour of duty? Um, from after that, then you do what when you get out of the army? You get out and then go into civilian life, and just do a quick little thumbnail on that. Your follow-up, because yeah. you came out of high school, said I'm going to Vietnam, or you wanted to get it become. Yeah, a crew I, chief. I had uh, uh, in the fall of 1965, I had saw this Life uh, magazine oh, article yeah. about uh, Yankee Papa 13, and it was a U.S. Uh, uh, 
helicopter crew chief, and it was a story about his job and duties, and, uh, you know, a pilot that he'd watched get killed in an LZ and how that affected him and everything. And I thought to myself... And that was with the H-34. Yeah, with the, the same aircraft the King Bees flew with. Yes, sir. And... Um, I was mechanically inclined, like to build cars and fix cars, and so I thought, well, working on helicopters would be cool, you know, in aviation, yeah. that, that sounds like a pretty good deal. And I really liked that idea about you go to war, you drop the troops off, and then you go home. Yeah. And then, you know. We always admired that side of your MOS. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. The, the part about having nothing to hide, hide behind but an M60 yeah. was a little different side of it. I didn't realize that, you know, the whole time you're taking them in, you're shooting ducks. Well, did you ever hear, what was the, there was always a, a rumor or a legend saying the expected life expectancy of a Huey door gunner was how many minutes? It wasn't, yeah, it was a rumor. It wasn't true. It wasn't true, okay. But, but, uh, but for yeah, us ground pounders, we heard that there were so many door gunners banged up or killed that it was really a, a high rate of turnover. Was, it was, a, you know, it was a high rate of uh, uh, loss, but I think uh, there were like 10,000 pilots and only 2,000 pilots were killed from VHPA uh, records. So about 20% chance of being killed. But mm. there were a lot of missions. There were a lot of missions that didn't go anywhere near the battlefield. Right. You know, flying the, the media around and flying the, the brass and oh, the staff. The ass and brass. Yeah. So uh, I uh, read that article and uh, I was ready to go in the Army then. And my mom said, No, you're 17. I'm not signing for you. <laughs> You're going to graduate from high school. So you got edumacated. So I got my, my edumacation in high school. Yeah. And uh, July 3rd, joined the Army. And I uh, went and went to helicopter school. And I was just dreaming to get my own helicopter and be one of those crew chiefs. Indeed. And, and what, what day, do you remember what day that was that you officially got your first bird? Yeah, it was, it took a lot of haranguing on my part. <laughs> The maintenance people said, we can't let you go. You're too valuable to us here. we got to, you know. Oh, yeah, they, they like the wrench turners, huh? Yeah, they, yeah. they, they needed us. But uh, finally, it was about 15th of March. Uh, they had an opening in the Ghost Rider platoon, and the Ooh. platoon sergeant had befriended me, and uh, so he went to bat for me, and they said, oh, okay, well, you know, we got some other people we can train for that job now. And so they let me go, and that's when I became it. And I tell you what, I was just on cloud nine. And uh, <laughs> I tell you what, it's just been the highlight of my life. Indeed. Nothing better than being a Huey crew chief. No, and then yeah. think of all the recon teams you and Lieutenant Neal saved. Yeah. Getting them out when they're under yeah. fire. Yeah, and fortunately, a lot of them are my good friends now. Indeed. And that's... Uh, we should mention, I think, at this point that um, there is a veterans group called the Special Operations Association, founded originally by SOG recon men. And uh, over the years, we have our aviators that are attached, everything from SPAD pilots. We've invited the fast movers, but they have an attitude problem. <laughs> but the rotor heads, they're there. Yeah. 
and you now are have been elected to the board of directors serving a tour of duty on the board of directors with the yeah. special operations association and then um um on top of that there's a video game out we can have just a quick yeah. comment about the video game yeah. where you've had a little taste of this video game and uh yeah. something there, a little different here there's a for those of you gamers out there, there's a brand new video game. Uh, it's part of the, it's a CDLC for Arma 3, which is a military simulation game. And it's called Sog Prairie Fire. And it's about the Sog recon missions in Vietnam. And Tilt's been an advisor on it for a couple of years, along with some other recon Leaders. Yeah, Jim Shorten, uh, Major Jim General Shorten retired. Ken Bore is is involved. Uh, Dick Thompson. Oh. is. Uh, and by the way, if you haven't seen Jocko podcast number two hundred four, two hundred five, particularly two hundred five. That's my. After I watched that, I felt like a wimp. I mean, compared to Dick, and then two hundred six. But yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. We get back to <laughs> the game. To, to the game. So. Uh, Fortunately, the, the developers were really interested in history in the Vietnam War, and they listened to our advice, and they were at the virtual SOAR reunion last fall doing a presentation, and I noticed they didn't have any aviation advisors. And so I told Rob Graham, the, the leader, I said, you know, I got a lot of aviation pictures and I can give you some aviation advice. And so we exchanged email addresses and so I started giving them aviation advice. So you became an advisor on top of it. On, on top of it to the game. And I have to add, I've looked at some of these the simulations of inside a UE from the pilot seat and that is like, I felt I was right there. Well, I went on um, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, you do? You're on YouTube? Uh, yeah, under Hughes Crew Chief. Oh, wow. Is, is the name. And if, okay. If you, if you do a Google search one night. Say it again one time so people can hear it. it. It's Hughes Crew Chief. But if you do a YouTube search, 195th SOG, most of the videos will come It'll up. It'll pop. And you can, you can uh, watch them. And Including an excellent historic one that you did a few years ago for the 195th. Yeah, yeah, I've got, that was really good. They're all they're all uh, about the 195th and the SOG operators, pictures and talking about SOG legend Jerry Mad Dog Shriver. Because you had a little exposure him. to Jerry and your time transporting SOG recon hatchet force men in and out. More importantly, picking them up and bringing them home. Exactly. <laughs> and so. Uh, for the YouTube channel, I decided I needed a uh, video editing computer. So I started looking around and I discovered that a gaming computer with the same processor and graphics card and everything as a video editing computer was about $500 cheaper. <laughs> So I Our technical to, advising, nodding his head, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, he knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I went to this computer builder, built gaming computers, and, and got a, a computer. Well, it had Steam on it, which is Steam's where uh, you get all the video games for okay. PCs. And so Rob was telling me, well, you know, you need to, you know, put the game on. I said, well, I do have Steam. 
And so I was communicating with him one day and he said, you know, Arma 3 is on sale for seven forty nine now, right now. And I said, well, I got it. I mean, that could, seven forty nine. that's a glass of beer. <laughs> so I went and bought it. And uh, so then he and their advisors got me hooked up with the Sog Prairie Fire Beta. Yeah. And uh, I had, it has a boot camp tutorial. So I went and learned how to walk and how to, bring your gun up and down and shoot. I said, you know, if you're gonna, if you want, if you can walk, you know, we'll keep you alive. And these are all <laughs> the developers of the game. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I get the game. Well, before I want to go out with them, I want to practice. And one of the SOG missions is called a bright light mission. Ooh. And it's where a SOG recon team goes and rescues the down helicopter pilot. And so we got a down, helicopter pilot so I'm out here single player and and I, I did it twice the first time I uh, I got killed a hundred times before I got you Painful know 500 yards yeah yeah well <laughs> to my ego at least it's oh, a video yeah. game <laughs> and uh, but the second time I got all the way to the helicopter and so I decided single-handedly I'm gonna assault the helicopter <laughs> and that didn't work out well. And and then Rob told me, he said, yeah, that, but bright, bright Light or any of those recon missions are hard to do single player by yourself. So they said, come on with us. We'll, we'll run it with you. So the and team aspect so to it. So the developers, they heard that I'm going to meet up with them and play, and they all want to play with a real vet. Absolutely. And so uh, a real crew chief on top yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, real sock guy that had done this. Yeah. And they you know, they were kind of excited that uh, and they could see why I picked the bright light mission first at the <laughs> end that we're recovering an aviator. Indeed. And so the the game the scenario is is you have to go to the to the uh, helicopter, get to the helicopter, then you have to follow the blood trail from the helicopter to a, a communist NVA village, VC village, and then you have to go down in a cave complex, get, you know, over to the uh, pursuers and, right, right. and in the cave, and then you have to get the pilot, and then you have to, you know, formulate a defense, and then get the heck out of there, and... Uh, get extracted and of course the, the uh, uh, we put the team down in well I couldn't see in the cave and I, I later learned that my contrast was too bright but <laughs> there's a ladder I'm supposed to climb uh -huh. and I didn't even see it and I'm supposed to climb down to a lower level in the cave so I just fell Ooh. <laughs> so <laughs> Rob decides well Let's go outside. We'll defend the outside because when they come out of the tunnel with the pilot, the whole village is good. So we went outside, got behind some rocks, and we got in about a 20-minute firefight. And this is a five-level complex cave that the other guys are sneaking around in, shooting people, and right. you know, till they find the pilot, and then they got to bring him out. And you have to reload your magazines too, and, unlike other video games where they can fire a thousand rounds yeah. and they can die a thousand times. And and uh, you know I'm carrying an RPD, which has a, a it's a 
uh, NBA uh, machine gun. Yeah, yeah. And I had a 100-round belt. And then I've got a sawed-off M79. <laughs> oh, is that right? Little and, thumper. Yeah, little thumper. Indeed. And uh, I got some advice on how to kid up for this. <laughs> and uh, and so we're in this hellacious firefight. I mean, we got three sides are around us and, and uh, we're just, you know, shooting out like crazy. Finally, they come out with the pilot and then we got to beat feet and it's a prairie fire. And of course, <laughs> lines that you wrote, the voice actor is, is yeah. yelling in our ears. You know, as we're running and we got VC chasing us and running gun battles and, you know, and people it, getting And there's, there's an authentic feel to it with the weapons, the gunfire and the jungle setting. And yeah. it pays homage to SOG and the, and the aviators that were part of all of that. Absolutely. And so we get up and we get up on top of Hamburger Hill, which is <laughs> in the game. And uh, that's our extractor point. So... We gotta we gotta get in a uh, a bomb crater and defend the LZ, and so we've got airstrikes going on. They got tack air and everything going in around us, and you know we're in another five or ten minute gun battle, just like a real SOG oh, recon yeah. team would be, until we get it quieted down, and then a helicopter comes in and Lieutenant and, Neal's flying. Ed, I don't know. I think Don was, <laughs> but it was a king bee. Oh, so I, okay. Hey, I, I get on the helicopter, and we're all kind of talking, going back, and I go, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and, of course, several of the developers had read some of the SOG books and yearbooks, books, and that the team guys would say, you know, they come out and they go, I'm never doing that again. And then they get back, have a couple of beers, get bored, and they're out there again. Indeed. You know, the beat indeed. goes on. But it uh, it definitely, historically, is very accurate. Uh, the artistry and everything and the helicopters and everything is, is just top notch. And, uh, you know, I think it's uh, uh, well done. Uh, I think you've watched a couple of streams, uh, Tilt. I did, you? yeah. It's really impressive. And uh, I'm not a gamer. But what I've seen, I really like. And uh, uh, once we get settled, we're still moving, getting settled into the new home and uh, our four acres in Tennessee. We're going to, uh, I'll be spending more time with it. My, my, uh, my stepson really likes it. And a few other people I've talked to that looked at it, including our techie, Tom the Tech, our mystery man. He uh, liked it also. Well, so, I think that... Uh even if you don't have time to play the game and you're not a gamer, I mean, I've never, I've never, I mean, Solitaire on Windows Solitaire is my computer game and I haven't played it for 20 years. And, uh, but I uh, watched my grandson glow, growing up play video games and uh, now <laughs> he's working, doesn't have time to play video games, but I twice a week there play we with go. guys. All right, any other last thoughts, sir? No, sir, it's been a pleasant time. and uh, Well, likewise. You know, it's nice to get a, I, a little bit of an insight into life of a crew chief. I hope that I've on. given people a little bit of what, what went on behind the scenes of just uh, insertion and extraction. Indeed. You know. Well, um, we're at that time where um, we want to th say our thanks to all veterans out there, men like Don Haas, 
who fought for the values of our country, truly an American hero, one of our many that fought in the secret war. To those of you out there on the front lines today, we thank you for fighting all for our ideals, for our country, and for our freedoms. We also thank police, law enforcement, border patrol, the secret service, paramedics, dispatchers, corrections officers, anyone out there helping our country be a better country. And thanks to all <clears throat> that we can live so that we live in safety. And we want to thank the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, Coast Guard, and yes, I guess we now have the Space Force for our security today. And for those who didn't come home, we salute you all. For without your sacrifice, we would not be a free country today. Thank you for joining us. Until next time. And now for the postscript. After SOG cast number seven, myself and Tom the Mystery Man, my techie. Um, that, that time goes by fast. It does. It's, and it's so quick. To get a Rotorhead's perspective on SOG missions, your take on this, because this, a lot of this is the first time you've heard it. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's definitely different to hear um, from their point of view and, and this, you know, and what they have to go through. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, working with aircraft and, and stuff that I've done, it's, you know, I've talked to them, but it's different. <laughs> it is. You're not them. That's I've right. been in a helicopter. I've flown in them. Yeah. But it's have, not the same. And we jumped out of them, yeah. roped out of them. <laughs> exactly. Got but pulled it's, out of jungles, or you got pulled out of somewhere yeah, on them. <laughs> but it's not, it's not the same. It's, it's just, you know, hearing their point of view and seeing what they see. Yeah. You know, it's just going through, I mean, going through that rainstorm, just that alone. Can you imagine? Like, how do you fly? Like, I, you know, uh, I talked to that one pilot that we were talking about before yeah, that yeah. I met down at Fort Benning. And he, uh, when he talked about it, you know, comparing old aircraft, you know, the Hueys that you guys flew in versus yeah. the Blackhawks. And he said, that, well, that's not flying. You know, Blackhawks, that's not flying. Oh, you is know? that Cause, right? Because it's all computerized, you know, really? from what his perspective yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, sure. He's like, a Huey's flying. He's like, when you fly with a map and a compass <laughs> and just basically fly over the treetop levels, yeah. that's flying. He's like, you're not, you don't have computers tell you where to go. You just had a compass. Because that line from Fred Lindsay's book, where you're quoting uh, Sergeant Pat McMullen, how he remembered the team and the gun stayed if needed. Well, shortly after they went in, there was contact. And then he said, they made contact at that same time the typhoon blew in. <laughs> A typhoon blew in. <laughs> While the team's in contact, our slicks were grounded at Quan Loy. So we were all those guys had. So here we came. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, here we came in a typhoon. These are gunships that aren't designed to pick up troops. No. So they go out and spend all their ordnance to make room and get rid of the weight so they can so pick, pick up people. Oh. I mean, that's a huge sacrifice. That's a huge risk. I mean, yeah. just to just to do it. And and to have that, you know, like you said, the ice in the veins, to be calm and collective and just do it, you know. I never um, got over that. No. And I've seen pilots like that, but it's like, it's one of those things you're like, I don't understand how you Do they go to, like, is that part of helicopter training? Is like how to get ice in your veins? <laughs> how to take out emotion? Yeah. 
And then uh, hearing about the strings and everything, I think you had a, I think you had a, a tale of strings. <clears throat> I know, I know you had a, Moving a great right along. tool. Moving you right know. along, sir. Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did yours upside down, though, if I if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Me and cowboy. <laughs> Just hanging by your feet. It's yeah, okay. It's good. <laughs> oh Lord. Yeah, I mean, the way they've flown, you know, at treetop level and nap of the earth, as they call it, and it's like you know, flying that low, knowing you're. I mean, you're in range, but you're flying so fast that it's it's hard to get you. Oh yeah. You know, it's quiet. You know, you're so low to the ground, but I mean, nothing but extraordinary. You know, from a guy who's I'm. A, I want to be a helicopter mechanic, and now you're flying missions for SOG and it's like oh this is this is different yeah we can't talk about it right now <laughs> yeah. so finally he is yeah and, and that's it's great a little different perspective to the whole war it definitely is Absolutely. and I loved it it was great I mean the getting that other side getting someone outside of it you know you get that outside looking in kind of view yeah still inside but it's a it's that the other component of what SOG was it wasn't just the recon men it wasn't just all of that it was it's the helicopters, it's the aviators. And that's, I mean, kudos to you to bringing someone in from well, that Jocko. side. Eh, well, Jocko and you <laughs> yeah, yeah, for getting work. it to, to arrange it and have him come in and get that different perspective. Because I think that's, um, you know, we've talked about it before. It's it's that perspective that's not covered. You know, there's yeah. certain parts you're, you're not covered. You know, that they play an, you know, instrumental role. I mean, without them, where would you be? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, where would any of them be? Yeah. You know, pilots and, you know, all those guys that were willing to fly in there and do that. And then, uh, oh, the one thing I was going to say is uh, I think uh, blowing up the helicopter was a Dick Thompson story. Oh, that <laughs> when was he, one of when his he got When he got chewed out for that. He got yes. chewed out for that one. <laughs> yeah. Do you want us to bring it back? Yeah. <laughs> No, we just napalmed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got um, the technical stuff out first, then we blew it and up. And then you just blew it up with C4. Yeah. I, I do remember that there happened to be, I think, two, at least one or two NVA, NVA soldiers in, like, inside the helicopter that yeah. he put the charge in. Indeed. So, uh, yeah. So that reminded me when I was, I was talking about that. And then. Uh, That's right. The other thing was uh, so on the video game. Oh, yeah. Played it for the first time this morning. Really? I can't say it went, went well. Uh, I did oh, you a. Got, you got killed. I, huh? I did an eldest son. Oh. <laughs> I figured I was gonna start off. I was like, "Well, this is easy. I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. do this one. It's easy, right?" I go in, I drop some stuff, and I leave. <laughs> yeah, not so much. I did it by myself. I didn't have a team, so I'm used to what other guys play. I haven't played video games since I was a kid, so yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm no expert on video games by any means. Don't let me fool you, because <laughs> I think I shot my rifle more times accidentally <laughs> while I'm trying to sneak around. <laughs> Because, oh, no. yeah, it didn't work. I was uh, using a keyboard and a mouse pad, but yeah. uh, it, <laughs> I was basically sneaking up. I'm like, okay, I can hear him talking. And I'm like, okay, I can't see anybody. Yeah. So I'm like, well, let me swing around and see what my team's doing. So <laughs> I do a 360. There's nobody there but me. And I'm like, oh, oh, this, oh, this is how this works. I'm alone. <laughs> I'm the loner. <laughs> doing an eldest son with a... I had a, I took the, well, I think it's an M16 is what they have on there. Uh, the one I got was an M16. They didn't, oh, give, right? me, they didn't give me a car 15 option. They only gave, oh, they gave you Dick Thompson's gun. Yeah. And, uh, when he brought from the, from the, from the pilot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I took, uh, I took, but I took, let's see, I had eight 
20 round magazines, which sucked. <laughs> Only 20 round, oh, not 30. Yeah. So I had eight of those on my kit. And yeah. I had, so then I brought 25 in my <laughs> I brought Claymores. I brought uh, Bouncing Bettys. I brought Frags. I loaded out as much as I could carry. And I'm going along and I'm doing good. And I'm like, yeah, I'm getting there. You know, it's like I'm within like 400 meters of the target because it gives you a little yellow beacon that you Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So at least you, you don't get lost. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'd probably wander. So I get and I'm going. And uh, all of a sudden I can hear them. And I'm like, all of a sudden I hear gunshots. I'm like, oh, okay. So where are they? So I'm looking to my right, looking to my right. I swing back to my left and the guy comes around the tree and shoots me. I'm like, oh, thank you. Didn't even have time. Didn't even get a chance to shoot at him. Just <laughs> like oh, great. You guys got a lot of ammo now. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I definitely have to try it again. It's gonna take me a while to figure that one out, but I'll give it a shot. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, any any other last minute thoughts here? No, it's a uh, yeah, incredible tales, and uh, and again, thank you for having me here to listen to this uh i feel like one of those guys that's you know proud to sit here and, and listen to stuff and listen to our history yeah i'm just completely uh, amazed about it every every time i sit here and every time i do this you Indeed. know and so meanwhile we have to pitch one more time oh yeah fred Lindsay's book the secret green beret commandos in cambodia it's available on amazon etc stories abound today we only hit on one yeah. story with some of the sidebars attached to that but he goes through the entire history of ccs from the early days and then at the end when ccs was um decommissioned shut down the men the recon men then went to north to ccn to uh at denang ccc contum and he documents that mm -hmm. as well as some of the uh awards and decorations and as we first started talking, like Don said, um, the uh, book is based off of citations. So any action happened was citation related, which means there's a lot that weren't. Yeah. And Colonel Lindsay, to his credit, put years into this book. And uh, so it has everything from different sides of the story, including this one. That's why we picked it. And uh, we thank Colonel Lindsay, who's today in Indiana, and uh, still uh, working hard and cheering us on <laughs> as we move forward. And so with that, we'll close out today. And again, we thank uh, all of our service members for our freedoms from the Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, and yes, today, Space Force. <laughs> all out there looking out for our country. And even though some of our leadership might not remember what Memorial Day is about, we do. We pay homage to those troops. We salute them all and to all the frontline personnel and other law enforcement agencies, particularly the Border Patrol, Homeland Security, that's under a great deal of stress today. And uh, we just continue to carry them in our prayers and pray for our country. So we thank you for that. And we thank you for Jocko for the opportunity to bring SOG cast number seven to you today. And until next time, we'll be lining up some more which will include a Medal of Honor recipient. Until next time, thank you for joining us today. Out. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. 
At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.